0: Hey, folks, it's one of your
1: co-hosts, Evan Ratliff. And before today's episode, I wanted to give you a little preview of next week's episode. Back on the show will be Tanahasi Coates. And uh, in what I think is a first for us, he'll be joined by his editor, Chris Jackson, to talk about both sides of the writer-editor relationship. Tanahasi has a novel coming out called The Water Dancer, and we discussed, among other topics, the challenges of creating a world around a subject that everyone thinks they know.
2: How do you make slavery new? Like, how do you, like, I mean, it's a well-trod, you know, territory, you know, how do you, and by new, I mean, how do you imagine it in such a way that people feel like, I haven't encountered this before.
1: That's a little preview of what you can find back here on this show next week. ta is also headed out on tour where he'll be interviewed in some big venues by the likes of Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ryan Coogler. There's a link to that in the show notes, so you can go find him in your city. And in the meantime, here is today's episode of the Longform Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Long
2: Form Podcast. I'm Max Linskip. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, hey. Hey, Max. Hey, you guys. What's going on with this show? Uh, what's going on with this show is that we got Paul Tuff on it. Paul Tough. Paul Tuff. Tough. He, uh, he writes about education in America. That's probably what he is best known for. But he has a long uh, history, magazines and such. Before that, he uh, was one of the first people at This American Life... He was like a Harper's intern in that same era as many people that we've had on the show and then went on to be an editor at Harper's. He ran a magazine called Saturday Night in Canada. Uh, He did this project, which we actually talked about a little bit in like, you'd be into this Aaron, in uh, like 2000, he started a website, like an internet magazine called Open Letters that published every day. And he, uh, well... I'll let him tell the story. It's interesting. Uh, but he has a new book out, uh, which is a big book about education. It is particularly about uh, higher education in America. It's called The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. And uh, spoiler alert, you guys, uh, higher education in America, deeply fucked. Uh-oh. Shocking. Paul Tuff uh, once edited a story of mine. Oh, yeah? Really? Yeah. Really, really good editor. Should have yeah. stuck with that. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about it a little bit that like editor uh, to writer conversion was uh, it was difficult for him if you're trying to make that jump from being an editor to a writer try it out on a newsletter first won't cost you anything if you uh, sign up with MailChimp you don't even have to pay till you get up to a certain number of subscribers so uh, I think that uh, newsletters are a great place for uh, writing experimentation and um, You can't experiment till you have one um thanks to mailchimp for uh, bringing us this show and many other shows we've done
1: and now here's max with paul tuff
2: hey paul hey welcome to the uh podcast thank you great to be here thank you for doing it uh we're going to talk about this book you have a new book uh, you're here to talk about the new book. We need to make sure that people know about the new book and uh, go buy it. They should buy it. I've read it; it's good. Uh, but you. I've been trying to have you on for like a long time, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna ask you some of the questions I would have asked you before you the, wrote this book. Great. Uh, I have spent some time with your uh, with your archives over the last uh, little while. Uh, you're catching me like after vacation. Great. Uh, so I had a lot of time, so I, w- I went deep. Is what I'm trying to say. Excellent. And uh, there are these points in time. And I was wondering if we could just kind of hit some points in time, and uh, I'd be interested in uh, your thoughts on them. So the first one is um, I read this article in Esquire magazine from 1990 on hackers. Yeah. 1990 hackers. Yeah. And I went on won a bunch of awards. Um, it's a pretty wild story. It ends with these, like, teenagers in New York hacking the White House, which I feel like has some resonance to this moment, but mostly like I went and looked around. There's not a lot on like hacking at all at that point, and so I was interested in where you were in your life at that point and how you happened to be. You wrote that story with of Jacket, but how you guys happened to like get on that so much earlier than anybody else.
1: Yeah, it happened through my real job at the time, which was that I was working at Harper's Magazine. I was. Like 22 or something like that. Um, And I'd come to Harper's to do an internship and then went off and worked at another magazine and then got hired back by Michael Pollan to work on the reading section. And readings, it was this, I felt anyway, this sort of revolutionary important form at the time that I just, I loved it as a person reading the magazine And it feels very kind of web-like too, like it was just excerpts from different things, sometimes books or literary magazines, but sometimes just weird documents that we would find and present. And it felt like this very meta form that was saying like, there are all these important things out in the world, we're gonna present them in this very um, rigid form where everything looks like everything else. And so I would do a lot of things like check out zines. And so I uh, found this zine called 2600, which was um, this amazing hacker magazine um, published by this weird dude named Emmanuel Goldstein. And they had this, I think we excerpted something in the reading section. And then they had this monthly meetup at like the Citibank building or something where they would just all hang out by the payphones and hack the payphones. <laughs> so I started going and meeting these kids. Uh, although you were what? I, although, I, yeah. You were 22, so I was you were... 22, but they were like 15. So <laughs> They know. were a young 15 and you were an aged 22? So. Sort of, yeah. But I felt, I mean, you know, I think it helped in terms of me, like, getting to know them. And and so I started to hang out with them, liked them a lot, felt like maybe there was a magazine article, didn't really understand what a magazine article was. But uh, Jack Hitt was also working amazingly at Harper's at the same time, and... He was doing some freelance writing and I, he and I were becoming friends. And so I asked him if he would do this thing with me and we pitched it to Esquire and we just started hanging out with them together. And I kind of learned how to write a magazine article from doing that with him. Why'd you
2: ask him to do it with you?
1: Like, I feel like that's very... Um, like, why not just do it myself?
2: Yeah. I feel like uh, most uh, young, ambitious reporters would try to not take that one for themselves.
1: Well, I don't... I mean, I think partly that I wasn't entirely a young, ambitious reporter. Like I didn't think of myself as a reporter. I thought of myself as an editor or I didn't even know what I thought of myself as, but I didn't have a vision that like I was going to be a magazine writer. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I didn't understand how you write a magazine article or how you report a scene or anything. I'd never really written anything. So I felt lucky that Jack did it with me. And I don't, I don't know what the version (laughs) without Jack would have looked like, but I don't think it would have ended up in Esquire.
2: What, um, what did you see? Like, what was your ambition at the time, if you didn't see yourself as a magazine writer or on your way to being one?
1: I mean, mostly I just felt so lucky to be at Harper's. It was this really amazing time to be there, and I loved the magazine so much, and I loved the people I was working with, and so all my ambitions were Harper's related. Just, just stay there. Yeah, just stay there and like do more and more <laughs> Hang on. cool stuff. Yeah,
2: We've had a lot of people on who have done that internship. I feel like it's some strange gateway to an era of journalism that maybe is gone now and so it's sort of like um slightly well-trod territory on the show but i'd be interested in like you had dropped out of school and you'd taken like a crazy road trip across the country and ended up in that internship and i would be interested in just like you, what your impression of that place was at that time
1: so, so I dropped out twice. Uh, the first time I dropped out of college, I did the crazy road trip on a bike. The second time I dropped out of college, I was at McGill University in Montreal. And I was not enjoying college and wanted to get back to New York. And so that's when I applied for the internship. And my feeling about being there, I mean, now I look back on it as this, I mean, it feels like Mad Men, You know, like, I mean, at the time, it seemed, of course, very modern and now. But it was crazy. It was like everyone was smoking in the halls and like it was all white guys mostly with a few white women and you know and we were helmed by lewis lapham who really is from from Batman. <laughs> um and you know wore a suit and had a gravelly voice and he um, came on the show in our
2: old old office really. like our studio two studios ago which had no air conditioning and he came in like a three-piece suit and it was july and his interview was incredible and also like just the fact that he made it out alive was like a huge relief it felt Uh, terrible
1: I mean it was uh, he definitely was from another era and an era I mean it just felt that that was definitely a perk of the job was hanging out and having drinks with him and hearing his stories about you know going to India with the Beatles and stuff like that Um, anyway but then the people that I felt were really editing the magazine were the sort of tier below him who were um, just this amazing group of people who have gone on to do amazing things Michael Pollan being the person who brought me back and who felt really like my mentor for those next few years and it just felt exciting too. I mean, I feel like we might've been fooling ourselves, but it did feel like the coolest thing around. Uh, I mean, it just seemed like like we were down in NoHo and Jack especially was bringing in, you know, he had like a forum that was all like downtown uh, performance artists. And it was just like a cool time to be in the city. So it felt very- Did you feel like you fit in? Plugged in. I did, I did. I mean, and kind of like for the first time <laughs> in a while, you know, I hadn't that college. And then, yeah, I felt like these are my people. So that Esquire story, it plugs into other things that I saw. So I was just like going through this
2: archive and there's a story on OxyContin from 2001, I think, mm-hmm. or 2003, maybe. 2001. Which also feels like, I mean, you get like a story from 1990 where people are hacking the White House, a story from 2003 about opioids. Like, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how you find something like that or how you decide to be the person who's going to like run at something that maybe is going to come back 15 years later and right. be a huge national problem.
1: I see. So that's the question about my incredible prescience. I that's like this right. question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, I do think that second question uh, is interesting. I don't know the answer to it, but I feel like that as a readings editor and then as a magazine editor, like that's just what I did all the time, right? Like was constantly looking through mostly the New York Times. Um, but everything else that I was paying attention to for what's the bigger story. And mostly I would then find someone I mean especially when I was at the Times, would then find someone to assign it to, or when I was at readings, like find some way to pull it out into something, or, you know, with this American life, like find a way to make a story out of it. So I feel like, yeah, that was the muscle that I was exercising all through those years. And then Why, like, with those pieces, I decided, like, maybe I should write this and not somebody else. A little random. Like, with that OxyContin story, I was hired by the New York Times magazine. I had been working in Canada, and they needed time to get me a visa. So I couldn't start work for, like, three months, and I'd heard about OxyContin, and... It seemed kind of interesting and it was part of the country I didn't know anything about. And so I said, well, how about I write this story for you guys? Well, it's like a bridge. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so like if I'd gone right to work, I probably wouldn't have written it or I probably would have assigned it to somebody else. I mean, you know, for all these years, I didn't think of myself as a writer. I was really thought of myself as an editor who was occasionally writing things.
2: Why do you think that is like why? Why didn't you write more?
1: I don't know, because now I do think of myself as a writer, right? And I'm 51 and, and, you know, I've only really been a writer for like, I don't know, 10 years or so. So that's kind of strange, right? And I'm not, I'm not so sure. And I don't feel like it was a smart set of decisions like, you know, having an article in Esquire at the age of 22, I probably maybe could have done something with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I didn't, Um, I think part of it might just be my own, you know, insecurities or, loathing of writing or something like that but I think part of it was also then being an editor and working with all of these writers who were just so much better than me and I think I had that experience of not being able to understand how they got good and so just assuming that they were always good and that they had some magical gift that I didn't have and couldn't learn
2: so I, th- I think that, that sounds was a kind of connected of to the insecurities part of it
1: yeah I think and I remember a, a moment like reading certain articles like in the new republic like the new republic had this era where they like all they had all these young writers and they were funny and smart and wise and and they were all younger than me like this was you know when i was 25 and they were 22 and just feeling like oh no they just got it they have they've got something that i'll never have how'd that change i mean it hasn't (laughs) totally changed uh but i you know i feel like i you know ira glass has this famous thing that he says where if you're a creative young person and you want to um, make something, what makes it hard is that you probably have taste, you probably understand what is good and what's not good, and you know that the things you're making early in your career are not good. <laughs> and the people who actually are able to like keep making them are just able to deal with that fact. And I think I wasn't able to deal with that fact for a long time. And so, yeah, I think it just took me till I was at least in my 30s and started writing and realized that I could take something and gradually make it better like there was such a thing as revision and I think that Oxycontin story actually was a big part of it that was the first thing that I wrote that felt like a real magazine story that I'd done on my own that felt good and felt like oh yeah I can do this too did you ever feel that
2: kind of doubt as an editor or did you just sort of like have that thing from the start as an editor yeah like if it took until your mid-30s or whatever to feel like you could pull off a magazine article and yet you had edited like hundreds of them by that point does the editing thing take time to get that confidence or did you just sort of have it from the beginning
1: well i mean the thing was that when i was an editor at harper's i wasn't a real magazine editor i wasn't assigning stories i was first of all just doing readings for years and ended up running or helping to run that section and then did harper's forums for a while after jack left um did the Harper's Index for a while. So there were these three forms that basically don't exist anywhere else that I spent and I was there for like eight years and those were the only things I did. Occasionally I would edit a story, but not really. Uh, But then when I ended up at the Times Magazine, like among real actual magazine editors, you know, working for Adam Moss, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing.
2: So how'd you figure it out? How How did I edit a magazine article?
1: Well, I think I learned from all the people that I was with. I mean, I really like... I didn't do much until I got to the Times Magazine. I mean, I did edit a magazine in Canada. I forgot about that part. Uh, so Saturday I probably, night. Uh, yes, exactly. So I learned a little bit by editing those stories. i learned a little bit at uh, Harper's. But then at the Times Magazine, it's just you just churn them out. You know, you're just doing story after story. It was, you know, Adam Moss and Jerry Maserati were my bosses. I was surrounded by all these other great editors. So I think I just learned through that boot camp. Just approach. kind of
2: reps. Yeah. But the, did the stakes feel different than they did for writing? oh yeah
1: I mean yeah so I and I had started sort of writing because of that Oxycontin story I'd started thinking like maybe now that I've got this job (laughs) maybe I should try that other thing that I just happened to do while I was waiting for this paperwork to come through and so I would do stories along the way and before long I started writing about Jeffrey Canada which then turned into this uh, story that then turned into a book and And that was like uh, five years working, you know, from the first time I met Jeffrey Canada to when that book came out. So there was a long period when I was an editor at the Times Magazine where I really was like, this is kind of a day job, and the stuff that I care about is figuring out this other story
2: and how to write it. It's funny, like, um, you sort of scan someone's career, and then, like, it's easy to sort of create a timeline of the dots, you know? Because if you just, look, like, actually look at bylines, it actually looks like... Uh, you're kind of like all over the place and there's like a bunch of different topics and it's kind of sporadic and you're editing and stuff. And then there's this point where it's like Paul Tuff is writing about education. And yeah. then that was 15 years ago or something. Yeah. And then like that is the next 15 years. Right. So I want to talk about that. Uh, but I have one more um, point on the map before then that I, I need a little context for, which is this. Project magazine called Open Letters. Can we talk about that for a sec? Because I I was also interested in where your head was at with that. So it was a magazine that ran for six months, a little bit more than that, a little more, yeah, nine maybe, and uh, that you started and edited. It was two thousand to two thousand one, and it was like a it was an internet magazine. Mm -hmm. It was a magazine on the internet. Yeah, (laughs) people should know that you're like just (laughs) slowly shaking your head right now. Uh,
1: Yeah, it was it was fun and strange and. evidence that i don't really know how to monetize ideas um
2: well that's what was interesting was it was it uh, felt entrepreneurial
1: yeah like, like what,
2: what was your ambition for that thing
1: so it really came out of my experience at saturday night so i got hired back in 1998 to go to canada where i'm from and run this very old establishment uh magazine in canada called saturday night that was in this transition being bought by other companies and it was a strange time to be there, but in some ways it was like a basic uh, monthly magazine like Esquire or GQ or anything else like that. And it was a very hard job and I wasn't particularly well-suited for it and I felt, partly because of the way that magazine was being bought and run, felt like under siege the whole time and eventually it didn't quite fold, but it essentially changed in a way that I didn't want to do it anymore. So I left and didn't feel great about anything myself life canada um (laughs) and uh and basically like i was the wrong editor for that magazine in some ways. well because it was like this giant magazine it's the biggest magazine in canada and my like what i liked was this you know i'd come out at harper's which was it was like a big magazine for the united states but like its readership was pretty niche and i had to figure out how to not be niche but really i liked editing for a select few people and so I started this section that I really liked in Saturday night called Canadian Letters, which were these first person, and I think I'd always liked first person stuff from working in uh, readings, these first person pieces from all around the country that was designed to sort of portray the geographical breadth of Canada, which, you know, like the advertisers actually didn't care about that stuff. All they cared about was people in Toronto and maybe yeah. Montreal and Vancouver, but I cared about like the weirdos and small towns in Manitoba. So it was this great opportunity to do this first-person writing, and they really felt like letters. And so that was the idea that I, when I got out of it that I wanted to try. And mostly, I think, after the experience of Saturday Night, I just wanted to do something that was sort of small and that I was in charge of and didn't have a lot of weird bosses uh, to answer to. And then I think the last reason that I that Open Letters was appealing to me was that I had to write something every day and I had developed this kind of writer's block when I was at Saturday night and that helped me escape from that in some way. But what Open Letters was, was this like, uh, so every day we would publish a letter, it's still up there at openletters.net. Uh, every day we would publish a letter from some writer to whoever he or she wanted to write to describing what was going on, anything in their life at present. And then once a week, we would collect those into a PDF and mail those out. And you could either subscribe and get a daily reminder to go to the website, or you could subscribe and get the PDF sent to you. And it was great. I mean, we worked with all these incredible writers and incredible editors who all worked for free, but there was no income. (laughs) Um, And the staff,
2: I mean, like the staff was you.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were a bunch of so there were a bunch of editors who put a lot of time into yeah. it. Who were just sort of my friends who were like, "Okay, this seems important to you." We'll, right, but we'll, you but you we'll were help. keeping all the ships running. And yeah, uh, but there was no. I mean, it was just me and a laptop sitting yeah. wherever I was sitting, and I was like moving around, and so there would be I would be editing from L.A. and San Francisco and Connecticut, and there was a while that I went on tour with my friends' band, the Hot Club of Cowtown, and so every night at that time. It was important that we would stay in a Motel 6 because Motel <laughs> Motel 6 phones they had a plug that you could plug you know the dial up cord from your laptop into and so I could post each day uh, <laughs> from Motel 6 the next day Did you day's have letter. any models for it or were you completely like winging it I mean I guess there were other people who were doing internet magazines right like this was after Slate and things like that existed and it was the sort of maybe the beginning of blogs like
2: yeah I mean that, that's part of what I'm asking though was like it felt somehow in between those things like it yeah. was your project but you were pulling tons of people into it it wasn't right. like Paul's thoughts you know but it also wasn't quite Slate you yeah. know? It, was, it was somewhere in between those things
1: no I mean I think the model for me was really like just first person writing it, it didn't the internet part was not that critical. It was just suddenly, I mean, that's what the internet is good at is getting things out there quickly and getting you feedback, which was great and amazing. Just like for me in that, after having worked at monthly magazines for so long, the idea of posting something and then getting feedback the next day, and then you write your editor's letter and you talk about the feedback that you got that day. Just felt incredible. Was it tough to close it? I mean, it was a tough era in general. Like it was sort of a crazy thing to do and I didn't have any real plan. Or sense of what I was going to do next, so it wasn't a real happy and fulfilling time. I mean, that project was fun and great, but I was totally burned out and was not making any money, and so it was easy uh, in that sense. And and I mean, you know, what was nice about it was it was and is a fully completed document. You know what I mean? Like I still pay my monthly dues to keep openletters.net um, and so you can still go there and read these incredible uh, to me anyway these incredible letters and so like closing it didn't take anything away And so, mm-hmm.
2: so help me understand how you got from that period into writing about this massive and unwieldy and yet like completely grounded topic of American education like When you look at it in in that arc, it feels like this big jump, and and I'd be interested to know how that jump felt for you, or maybe it wasn't one, but Uh, how'd you get there?
1: It felt a little random, I think, like most um, jumps in people's lives. Um, So, I mean, the weird thing about me as an education writer is I don't really think about myself as an education writer. Like with this new book, I feel like what I'm really trying to write about is not like, you know, theories of education or what happens in the classroom, although it would do a little of that. But it's much more just like how mobility works, what being young is like, how you get from one place to another. And this seemed like the way to tell it. And I mean, it really like my whole experience. So it started with meeting Jeffrey Canada in 2003. And when I started writing about him, that, that didn't seem like an education story. It seemed like a poverty story uh, and a kids in poverty story. He had started this thing, the Harlem Children's Zone, that was taking what I thought was this really revolutionary approach to helping poor kids in Harlem. and. He wasn't running schools at that point. It wasn't like until a year after I'd started reporting on him that he started his schools. And then that seemed really interesting to me. Like he'd started a charter school. I'd never heard of that. I didn't understand what it was. I didn't understand what the research was about whether schools can reverse the disadvantages that often go along with poverty or not. And then that turned into this like big debate that I guess I'm still trying to understand and trying to follow. And in some ways this new book is another... Chapter in that, but it didn't. It does. It has never really felt organized. I mean, my books feel connected, and I feel like I'm asking some of the same questions. But oddly, I don't really think of them as education questions.
2: What do you think of them as? I mean, what are the questions?
1: I think of them as like equity inequity questions. Like, why are things unfair in this country? Like, why is our social system so unfair and so persistently unfair? And why do people? Why do things not change? And why do people who grow up without much money or resources tend to stay poor as adults? And why do rich people stay rich? Yeah. And I feel like that question in reality uh, goes through education, you know, like education is the way, well, first of all, education is the way that when that changes, when poor people get rich or even, you know, middle-class or upper middle-class education is usually the path that gets them there. But I think it's also the system of education, the structures of education in this country, are the th- are part of the thing that keeps things as sort of stable and inflexible as they are.
2: I had uh, Michael Pollan came out a couple of months ago. Uh, your old Harper's colleague, and he um, talked about this idea of like essential questions and how like he had found his essential question, which was about nature and how we eat and uh, how we interact with the with the world, and if that is yours, do you have thoughts about why? Like, like, why you are so drawn to that question? I mean, if if you were bouncing around doing all these different things, and now you've spent 15 years thinking about that specific one, why do you think that is?
1: I don't know if I have a good answer to it. I mean, I think, like, I grew up in Canada, where the class system is pretty different than it is here. There's less, you know, of, of the huge gaps between rich and poor and a bigger middle class. I think I did, like, uh, I don't know if this is a real answer, but I but I have been thinking about the fact that like, as a kid, I often was going to schools with people who had more money than me. So we weren't poor, but we weren't rich. Um, and I went to school with some rich kids. And I think there was something at that point that I, like, I started wondering about that, like wondering just how does this system work and how do you get like that? And is it good to be like that? And is that a good goal? And so I think that might've had something to do with it. But I think there's another, another dimension where I just feel like those stories are interesting, you know, like, I mean, especially feel it with this book, which is about college kids, like hearing some, hearing anyone sort of tell the story of how those years of their lives went, like from, I don't know, 16 to 25 or something is like, it's just always fascinating to me. And especially I think if they grew up in not perfect circumstances, like that urge to change your life and to overcome where you started it just, I, I mean it just draws me I mean I feel like I'm not alone right this is sort of actually a big trope in in like all of literature <laughs> um, but, it, but for me especially I just love those stories
2: well I mean it, that was to me the most striking part of the book I mean there's sort of jaw dropping stat and study after jaw dropping stat and study and you are very quickly sort of intimately aware of how fucked up higher education is in America but there are so many kids. Like, there's so many stories of kids all over the country, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And I kept finding myself as I was reading the book being like, how do you find this one? So I sort of have, uh, I guess, a little bit of a two-part question, which is like, all right, so you've got this big question, which is like, inequity in America. How do you find stories within such a big question? And then I guess if this book is part of that you know, the next chapter, and you're answering it like specifically with these kids. Like, how did you go about finding them?
1: Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me when you, when like talking about, um, yeah, this time in people's lives and what their experiences were and how giant they often seem. I mean, the thing that kept happening to me so, I, yes, there were like kids who I went out and sought and. Talk to lots of kids in order to find the ones who I wrote about. Um, so I want to explain that part. But but the other thing that seems important was that like I would be talking to people who like adults who were interesting to me because you know they were the head of admissions at this place or they were the like a brilliant SAT tutor in this place. And when I would start talking to them about so like what about you what was your college experience and then we'll go back up a little bit well how did you get there their stories were just unbelievable you know like um this guy ned johnson the sat tutor who has his own company in dc who just grew up in this incredibly like chaotic upsetting family situation and was his mom was a little crazy and he was the one guy who knew how to calm her down which was this really perilous role to play in his family and was really painful because it would never quite work and now he's doing that sort of thing like with the kids who he's teaching and it actually works with them yeah he has Uh, this
2: what i found to be like totally counterintuitive idea of he is like dc's most sought after sat tutor and spends most of his time with kids like focusing on helping them with anxiety rather than like helping them with algebra yeah
1: and it works and he gets them all into Ivy League schools. Anyway, so I just felt like I just kept... So while, yes, I did go out and try and find people who had these stories, I also felt like there were so many people who when I just said, like, well, tell me about that period in your life, and these incredible stories came out. So I think they're more common than I might have expected. Uh, but in terms of finding the the young people who I really wrote about, it was just talking to lots and lots and lots of kids. There were a couple of organizations that I, that I who helped me out Uh, this one organization called College Advising Corps, which is sort of like Teach for America for college advisors. They place college advisors in different underserved high schools all over the country and then those counselors work with juniors and seniors to try to get them to prepare better for college. And they very kindly helped me go to dozens of schools all over the place from uh, New York to rural Pennsylvania to rural North Carolina and at each place I would just meet you know, ten kids and talk to them all, and then find one or two who I wanted to talk to more. So yeah, it was. There was a lot of auditioning. First of all, it sounds a little exhausting.
2: But help me understand what you're looking for in the auditions.
1: Now that I said that word, I regret it because I, I mean I I feel like I I struggled with this question, which is why I'm hesitating a little bit because like they are a little bit like auditions. Right. And I think it goes to this deeper question of what you're trying to do as a journalist, when you're trying to tell people's stories, especially people's stories who aren't like yours. And I, and I I like, um, thought about that a lot while I was writing this book because I did not want to sort of exoticize, I guess, the stories of these young people, especially those who, you know, who, who weren't a lot like me. Um, and, and so I didn't want to just like, do what I think journalists sometimes do and what I've sometimes done of like, okay, who's got the craziest story? (laughs) You win, I'm going to write about you, right? And so I think a lot of what I was looking for, I mean, certainly I was looking for interesting stories that seemed like they represented something broader, but I was also looking for uh, like storytelling ability and insight and candor, you know, like because I, I wanted to... With all the young people I wrote about, I wanted to see how deep I could go into their stories this time. I think because I felt like when I didn't go deep enough, I missed things. You know, I missed context and missed nuance of their stories in ways that didn't feel good. And so I wanted someone I could talk to over a long period of time. And and so how much they felt comfortable talking about themselves in a deep way the first time I met them was a strong predictor of what, mm-hmm. what I was going to work out.
2: It also seems significant that you weren't looking for the kind of craziest story cuz that was also what was striking to me as a reader it was just like Kim comes to mind she's like a where where was she she was
1: from Taylorsville this little town in western north carolina right and
2: nothing too crazy happens
1: you know yeah um but you're really in
2: her house and really in in her head as she makes decisions and wrestles with realities of going to school and I was just struck reading it how both intimate it felt and also I was sort of waiting for something crazy to happen, you right, know? Right, And then it just ends up being that, like, she goes to college.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what I got from her and then a lot of subsequently from a lot of other students I talked to was how much, if you are, you know, a low-income American who wants to achieve social mobility through college, like wants to get somewhere else through an education, that process is always hard, always complicated we as a society tend to make it as hard as possible but it also like it's always jarring like it's never just a plain like happy triumphant story and that's mostly because of uh, family right like it always involves complicated interactions with your family and complicated feelings about your family because basically what you're trying to do like when you say okay i want to like have a better life than i started out meaning i want to do better than my family did right which is great like that's social mobility that's really positive thing but when you're in it that's really hard and so that that's a lot of what i took away from Kim like the amount of time that I spent writing about her experience getting into Clemson was pretty small and the amount of time that I spent writing about her incredibly complicated relationship with her brothers and her mom and the place where she grew up that's mostly what I wrote about because that's what felt important and that's what felt like it was important to understand both for me and I hope for readers in understanding what's going on with a kid like that trying to get to college and change their lives through a college education.
2: I can understand the, the sensitivities around exoticizing anyone, but particularly I feel like there have got to be some sensitivities just in writing about people who are that age, right? Like to say, like, hey, I'm I'm Paul. I'm going to spend a bunch of time, like, in, in Taylorsville on your couch trying to get into your family dynamics. Uh, so I guess I'm just wondering how you think about, like, what you put in there and what you don't and how you talk to them about what that experience might be like both the reporting part and like the aftermath of it
1: right i mean i think I, I i think you know the answer to how i did it was very carefully or at least i tried to i mean i, I think both like how my career has unfolded but also how the culture has unfolded i became I hope more sensitive and thoughtful about that process than I was in the past and have been in the past and like realized more of like that what I was bringing is not just like journalistic neutrality, but is me right. And everything that I am. So that made me, I think, want to. Take more time and more care in getting their stories right, but it actually didn't push me toward like pulling back and saying, oh, let's not talk about that. That seems too sensitive. Um, It was oddly sort of more the other way. I mean, you know, definitely like didn't make them talk about anything they didn't want to talk about and let them go off the record when they wanted and direct me toward like stuff they wanted to talk about as opposed to stuff they didn't. But I think the people who I ended up in those long-term reporting relationships with, they were long-term because they wanted to talk, right? That for whatever reason, they felt like, this experience of talking to me over the course sometimes of years was valuable for them, whether it was, and I don't entirely know why, like, I don't know if it was because they thought that it was valuable, you know, to like have somebody to talk to and talk through your life with and ask questions like that's something that can sometimes feel good, right? When you're in in the middle of a confusing uh, situation or whether I think sometimes they felt like this like, this is a book that I care about, right? Like, I want someone to understand what it's like for someone like me to go through the system for, you know, sort of like political, social reasons. I want this story out there. And so even if I've got to sacrifice a little bit of my own privacy in order to do that, that's a worthwhile trade-off. But so I feel like with all of them, I, I got to a point where it felt like we were clear on what our jobs were (laughs) in this process that they were telling the stories and I was asking the questions and writing them down and trying to make sense of them Um, and mostly that felt good but it it just felt more uh, because I think I went into it feeling more sort of fear and doubt about the process and worry about getting it wrong it made me work harder than I've ever done I mean I've never done the kind of reporting that I did on this book and that was mostly just because I really wanted to get their stories right. What were you worried that you'd get wrong? anything I think like how to how to explain their feelings how to explain their relationship with their family I mean the the place where I feel like it played out for me most was in the chapter about Kiki Gilbert and that chapter I mean like maybe I'm the only person who uh, has noticed this or will notice this but like it's a weird structure in that chapter and it's really I mean the strange thing about that chapter is that it's partly a Chapter about storytelling. And it's mm-hmm. partly a chapter about how you tell your own story and particularly how Kiki told her own story. And so, like, I do a weird thing structurally, I think, anyway, in that chapter, which is I introduce Kiki, uh, who's the main character, this young African American woman with a very complicated family life who goes to a really good high school in North Carolina and then is applying to college when I meet her or starting to apply to college. And so, I start off at the beginning of the chapter, like introducing her a little bit and going through what seems like here's her whole story, and then go off and explain the life's like when she gets to Princeton and go into these big issues of what it's like to be a low-income student at a super rich institution like Princeton. And then in the last section, I come back and sort of tell her whole story again. And in telling her whole story again, at least what I'm trying to do in that section is let her talk about the process of telling her story, because the process of telling her story turned out to be this really important Thing and I, so I start off like describing her the first time we met. I went back and listened to this tape, and because I, you know, then had years of conversations with her, and specifically how she talked about her mom and her relationship with her mom is central, as is true for many of us, uh, but especially for her. And in this one first conversation, you know, after her junior year of high school, she like described her mom <laughs> in these three different ways and didn't tell me like all the most important stuff about her mom until much later. And then that story of like the difficult things that happened to her and her family, there's this moment where then she realizes like, this is a thing that I can use to get scholarships <laughs> and to get into exclusive colleges because there are certain people, you know, and those people are not that different than, say, me <laughs> or some of the people who are going to be reading this book who really like this story and are going to really be like emotionally moved by it in a way that's going to make them want to do stuff for me. And then she gets to Princeton and then she suddenly realizes like, oh, this story has changed. And if I tell the story now, it's going to hurt me rather than help me. Right. So like, I mean, I, I wrote all that stuff just because I found it totally fascinating and was amazed by her ability to understand what she was doing and to talk about what she was doing, but also because I felt like I wanted to a little bit wrestle on the page and, and get readers, I hope, to wrestle on the page with like how we hear those stories. So as you're literally reading Kiki's story and having the kind of emotional response that one does about a kid who goes from, you know, homelessness to the Ivy League, like, realize that your the readers or my, the writer's emotional reaction is part of the story, right? It's mm-hmm. part of her experience. It's part of, it's even part of the system. Like it's part of what makes those institutions continue to be so unfair because there are the Kiki stories that come out every once in a while that make us all think like it's working. It's fine. Kiki's in Princeton. It's all okay, right? And Kiki, I think as much as anybody I wrote about, was really conscious of the fact that that wasn't really what her story was about and told. And so trying to figure out how to use that, her complex thinking about her own story to try to convey all that was a lot of where all that all that wrestling for me yeah. ended up on the page.
2: Is that wrestling just... It's interesting that as you talk about that, it's about the stories we tell ourselves or, or the stories that these institutions tell themselves, um, these three books that you've done are all on some level about social mobility. And I wonder, what do you think rich people think of your books? And to what degree
1: are you writing these things for those institutions? Well, so when we're talking my... Newest book is not yet, so I don't. I don't quite know how they're going to take it. Um, so this book is pretty different than I feel like it's pretty different than everything I've written. Like I feel like it's more of an angry book, and it's more political. It's less. I think that that I've in my previous writing had a tendency to say like, um, "Hey, here's this cool solution that's going to fix everything," um, and here are these cool studies, you know, that if psychologists have done with a few hundred people <laughs> that show like we can fix everything. Um, that's an exaggeration. But like, I I do feel like that's a journalistic uh, style that um, has been appealing to me in the past. And I mean, it's partly I think why it took me so long, (laughs) why it took so long to write this book, uh, that the more time I spent reporting it, the more that like when I would sometimes hear about something like that and say like, oh, great, here's this guy who's doing this little experiment I can write about just like I've written about little experiments in the past and tell people what the perfect solution is. Those actually weren't working all that well. And like I was doing a separate set of reporting about like the big structural things going on in higher education. And it was becoming clearer that those structures were the problem and were the things that were messed up. And I think, you know, I feel like that's where I end up in the final chapter is saying like that. And I think I don't know. I'm sure there's something kind of frustrating about it, Um, but I hope kind of challenging to readers, which is like, it's not, there's no one coming to save the day. You know, there's not like a government bill that's going to pass. There's not a, like one big reform that the Ivy League's going to do. That's going to change everything. It really has to happen from, it's such a big complicated, mostly autonomous system that change has to come from lots of directions at once.
2: When you spend that much time thinking about that big a problem and that complicated a problem how do you know when it's over like how do you know when the reporting process for something like that is over and it just feels to me like if it were me i feel like it would go on forever yeah because there's so many moving parts and so many moving pieces and even i imagine you you were putting over six years yeah on the book for six years even a pretty significant six years in america yeah And I imagine that this stuff changed pretty significantly over that stretch of how how do you know with a project like this? How do you know when you're done? Like, how do you know when you when you understand it as well as you're going to understand it?
1: I mean, I just had a deadline. I just kind of, you know, my editor gave me a deadline and I gave myself a deadline and then I worked back from there. So I knew I think I got the book contract in the summer of 2016 and I'd done a bunch of reporting at that point. And I'd actually like abandoned, I'd started the book and then abandoned it and then realized I didn't want to abandon it. And why'd you abandon it? I abandoned it because it was too hard. And because my wife and I had our second kid, um, I, I started writing this other book. My third book, uh, is this little book called helping children succeed, uh, that started off as not being an actual book. And so there was this moment in 2014, 15, when I decided that was what I wanted to do instead of, writing this big college book and so took sort of a year off college and did that but then realized that wasn't what i i mean wasn't all i wanted to do that there was still this book that i wanted to do but then once i got back into it i gave myself a deadline said i'm going to report until this date which was like the beginning of 2018 and then i'm going to start writing and write all through 2018 and i more or less did that is it hard to stick
2: to that kind of stuff Like hard to hold yourself to those deadlines. Yeah,
1: but I I think because it was so sprawling, if I hadn't done it, you know, I would have just kept reporting and there would have been something else to do. And like for me, I'm a deadline kind of guy. So it was really, uh, it was important because it then made me think like, okay, there are only a certain number, like you can't tell everything, right? So you have to do what, Writers do, uh, and to find the stories that are going to best tell the story that you want to tell and put them together and make them make sense, and turn them into chapters and turn it into a book. And so that, like, yeah, I had to do that at some point. Once you say, all right,
2: my deadline for reporting is done, it's early 2018.
1: Yeah. So I had these, I had these really, um, I'm good at big deadlines. Like I do, I do, I don't, I, I've never like missed a deadline by months or years, but I really like, I'm terrible at daily deadlines and just I have terrible writing habits. I guess most writers have terrible writing habits, but mine, especially with this book seemed bad. And so this is the first time like I'm getting older and I have two kids. And so when I, part of when I structured that, you know, those years of writing, of reporting and writing, the idea was that this time I was going to be like a really sane writer. And I was going to exercise and take breaks and like have weekends off and come home for dinner every night. And why not? right? Like you should be, I had a whole year to write a book. You should be able to do that in eight hour days, right? Just pick it up, put it back. And then I started doing it and I started, I was exercising and, uh, and it wasn't working. And I uh, like, I mean, it was partly that it was the first chapter of the book, which I did two whole versions of that didn't work at all and had to throw them out. And then it was April or May and I hadn't written anything. And now like my year of writing in a reasonable way, it turned into like seven months to write a whole book. And so from that point on, I just kind of went crazy and wrote all the time and worked every day and stayed up all night and would regularly like come home at 630 in the morning and have breakfast with my kids and then go to sleep and then go back to work um, yeah it was it was really bad and uh, so uh, I mean as, as I think about the rest of my life <laughs> I am trying to figure out whether that is just the only way that I can write but what do you think at this point it seemed like it was I really hope it's not the case but I think it is to a certain degree I mean I think that my brain when I'm writing needs to be completely immersed in what I'm writing and it was not fun, the writing at all. It was not, not a good experience, but, but it was like the, you know, this amazing feeling that you can get when something is just completely on your mind all the time. Like I didn't, you know, it was all I was thinking about. And so I had like walk home at, you know, six in the morning, I had an office that was just a couple of blocks away from our house in Austin. And I would be like dictating emails to myself into my phone. Cause even on these two blocks, like I'd had more ideas that I had to get in there. And that's kind of cool, right? Like, yeah. it's kind of cool. It's more cool when you're 25 <laughs> than when you're 50. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I did have this feeling of like, oh yeah, if you do this and you're my age, you just have a heart attack and die. <laughs> um, you're really not supposed to do this. Uh, but I feel like it, it helped me, especially with a book like this, where I was trying to see connections and try to understand connections and try and go really deep into people's lives and understand the connections that, you know, ended up being, I think, some of the more important ideas in the book.
2: Aside from like talking into your phone, to to what degree are you talking to other people in that process? Not much.
1: Yeah, it was very it was very solitary and weird. Um, yeah, and I didn't I didn't I mean I had some people that I was showing things to and talking to a little bit, uh, and certainly once I finished a draft, had a lot of back and forth with uh, editors and friends, but it felt pretty solitary.
2: I mean, you know, I'm sure there are people listening who hear being able to take that long
1: on a project
2: is uh, luxurious yeah. and rare in the media world at this point but do you feel like the only way to do something great is to immerse yourself in that way
1: uh i think for me yeah i don't think for everybody but i think for me um yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, I really like the book, you know, <laughs> and um, and I and I feel like, uh, I, I mean, I did. I think partly being fifty, there was this just this feeling of like I want to write the best book that I can. I want to not. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to like cut corners. I just want to write, make the best thing that I can, and that that the only way to for me to do that was to be as crazy as I was for that, <laughs> for that, for that time period. I I am certain that there are other people who are able to do it uh, better than I did but I couldn't
2: you seem like such a together person it's kind of hard to imagine you uh, disheveled walking home at 6 in the morning talking into your phone
1: yeah my office uh, was it still is in this corner near the train tracks in Austin and uh, it's a couple blocks down the street from this incredible 24-hour uh, taco place called Tyson's Tacos uh, and a 24-hour donut place <laughs> um, and so yeah I was just like I'd regularly be going out there at four in the morning <laughs> hanging out with all the hipsters who were coming back from being drunk and getting their taco before going to bed so it was nice to have that but um, yeah I didn't feel sustainable.
2: It sounds to me like you had, uh, some greater level of ambition with this book. Like it took a lot of time and just said, like, I really like it. Um, where does that come from? You've had lots of big jobs. You've written lots of big books. Like why, why does this new level of ambition
1: come now? Like one of the things that I, I have to remind myself of in the, in terms of the narrative of like actually doing this book was the fact that like I started it, I thought I was starting a book about college. Then wrote this magazine article and then stopped and then started again a, a while later, and I think that question of ambition was all tied up in it, and it was also connected to like having a second kid and time and work and aging and everything else. Um, but there were two things that sort of got me back into the process and that made me want to do something good, and one was the uh, experience of working with um, Hanna Jaffe Walt at This American Life on her. Three Miles, that great piece that she did about students who uh, had gone to these very different schools, had known each other, and then um, had, had these weird experiences as they started to try to get to college. And so I was, I was um, she had asked me to come and help out. And I was sort of like as a consulting editor was working on that piece with her. And it was... She's an amazing reporter, amazing journalist, and so getting to have those conversations and hear that tape was great. But it also, for the first time, like made me feel. And this was sort of when I was in my hiatus, uh, having abandoned the book and not sure what to do next. And hearing her talk to these young people, Melanie, right? I think was the name of the main, uh, her incredible main character. It made me realize, like, that's what I want to do, right? I want to be Hana. Like, I don't want to be the consultant on the phone saying, um, yeah, maybe, like, move this story over here and restructure this. I wanted to be the person having those reporting experiences. Um, so that was part of, partly what pushed me. And why? Then, why? I mean, that is, that is like, of all, the, there's lots of, lots of parts of the process I don't like. I love reporting. Like, I love having, and especially in this book, I just loved having these conversations with with these young people. They were just always fascinating to me, no matter how many times I'd talked to them. The second thing was going to Hamilton. So around that same time, I went to see Hamilton, and you know, it's a pretty good play. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was still early enough in the process that like I hadn't heard how you know it wasn't saturating uh, the culture quite as much as it did a little later. So I was um, like coming to it kind of fresh, right, and just amazed by it, and just like had this feeling. I mean, he just was clear, so clearly swinging for the fences, right? He was just like. I'm going to put it all into this one. <laughs> and I just want this to be as great as possible. And then I later heard this incredible thing, which I guess I didn't know at the time, which is, do you know the story of like how he's, when he started, it took him a year to write. The first thing he wrote was the first song, Alexander Hamilton. It took him a year. And then, um, that's not a very long song to take, <laughs> take you a year to write. Sounds like a long year. Um, and then, and then the next song was my shot and it took him another year so at the the end of two years he'd written two songs they're really 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 good songs right but like the reason I'm telling that story is that I feel like it was I felt lucky to be that inspired you know I felt lucky to have that feeling of like I want to do something big and um, you know it's painful to to, like try and put it into action but it feels lucky to have had that experience
2: do you think it's a coincidence that you just spent six years of your life writing about uh, college and higher education and dropped out not once but twice (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm sure as you're going through this
1: press tour, that that is coming up a lot. But it uh, feels like something. Yes, I think it's not totally a coincidence. Um, I, I, you know, I, and and yeah, it is coming up sometimes. And I don't have a great answer to it. You know, I mean, I have like a pat answer, but not the long form podcast answer. Yeah, come on, man. Um, <laughs> um so. I, so I never mentioned it in the book uh, I'm not kind of hiding from it I mentioned it in How Children Succeed um, but the reason I didn't write about it was because like I don't think my my, my experience of being a dropout is really weird right like it's very rare for someone to drop out of college and then go and be a magazine editor and have a successful journalistic career. It, maybe not in the past, but like in the present. And so I didn't want to sort of hold it up as the like, hey, I know you don't need a college degree. There's lots of pathways because there aren't that many pathways. And I feel like mine was rare and weird and had to do with the time and who I was and the fact that I was a white guy and uh, lots of other things that made it possible in that one moment, in that one place to... Um, make it without a college degree uh but i do think the thing that feel that does feel connected is that it like i didn't like college all that much right like it was okay but like what didn't you like i i I think there's just something about literally about the education like the process of sitting in a lecture I, i don't like it it's just not my way of learning and i mean the the and the thing that really struck me was when i got to harper's you know, I was only like a year away from, from a VA at that point. But I got to Harper's, did this internship. And it like on day one, I remember coming back and saying uh, to my friends who I was staying with, like, this is the thing. This is the thing I've been looking for. And it really did. It was like that was this was why I went to college <laughs> to have these experiences that I was having at Harper's and not the experiences that I was having at college. It was like an actual intellectual conversation. So anyway, but I feel like all that sort of uh, college skepticism helped me. You know so like the book ends up saying like college degree is kind of important and the people who are telling you it's not are partly motivated by not wanting you to get a college degree but I, there are a lot of people right now right who are very skeptical about college like a lot of Kim's family in Taylorsville yeah. is telling her how colleges rip off and they're not alone and so I feel like even though I can read the statistics and understand the value of college I on a deep level can relate to that like there's got to be more to life like there's got to be another way to make it than sitting here and listening to this professor you know because that was basically how I felt for all the years that I was in college
2: I got one more book question then I'll let you go great Uh, so there's these two kind of narratives in the book right there are these big picture institution questions and then these stories and I wonder if you could just help me understand how much one was leading the other if at all like i get how they talk to each other big systems people in the systems but i'm interested in in your process over this chunk of years like was learning about one informing the
1: choices you were making with the other
2: or, or vice versa do you know what i mean
1: yeah i mean i think i i, I feel like i there's lots of nonfiction writers right who are um whose books or articles are combinations of individual people's stories and then trying to understand a bigger system right and i think a lot of what i was trying to do in this book was do that in as non-simplistic a way as possible i had this weird experience with one article that i wrote not long ago where i had the big picture idea i needed a character to animate that and i did what i've done in the past and what i think other magazine writers have done and what i've told people to do as a magazine editor which is like okay we need the character for the first section right to like uh grab people's attention and get you into it and so i found like the person who's perfectly um personified the big things and told her story and it worked in a magazine-y sort of way uh and she really didn't like the story and didn't like the way that i wrote about it and that happened like just as i was starting this book and it was really um it made me feel terrible, and the, you know, like there were parts of me that just was like, okay, then I just shouldn't like write articles like this. But but in, but I hope that what it pushed me to do instead was just like try to have these two parts exist on their own, right? Like just have these that I really did believe that understanding people's stories as they were going through this process was going to help readers appreciate and understand the big picture you know, in ways that like writing works when it works, right? Like that, I feel like, you know, the nice thing about a book for me, as opposed to a magazine article is that it's less formulaic. There are a million different ways to do it. And and that kind of gives you like some freedom, like a bigger canvas as a writer, because you're trying to create this like emotional mood where ideas like have a place to sit in a person's brain. And when people are moved, by a book and even moved I moved emotionally or moved to action, it's not I've gradually come to conclude it's not by like being, you know, told, here's the problem, here's the answer, now go do it. It's by having like your vision of the world slightly changed right but, and and that is this much more sort of immersive psychological subliminal kind of feeling right so once i came to believe that i felt like i could solve this problem that i had of like feeling bad about this one subject who i'd written about in a way that it felt not true to her story and so that let me try to weave these two things together in a way that didn't always have to fit perfectly you know mm-hmm. like you know, Kiki is not the perfect example of of what it's like to be a first generation college student at a highly selective institution, right? Her story is kind of yeah, weird, like, and like, even
2: like complicates it a little bit. Yeah.
1: yeah, or like Kim, right? Like Kim's not the perfect example of like I mean, in some ways, like I was trying to find this kid for like a white rural kid. In some ways, she's very much like this economist Carolyn Hoxby writes about, uh, who doesn't have enough information about college, and she neither sort of proved or disproved <laughs> the thesis of that particular study, but like. I hope anyway that like hearing those stories at the same time that you are being exposed to this data these studies this news about what's happening in higher education that that hits you on some mm-hmm. level and like that's where you know the books I care about the most hit me on that level um, and so I don't know if I pulled it off or how you I would know if I did pull it off. Well um, I think
2: I think a, a way of knowing it is that I spent the whole time I was reading it trying to figure out whether you had had ideas that were driving the people that you were featuring or whether the people you were featuring had driven ideas in the book and um it sounds like the answer is both and neither
1: yeah i mean my reporting like so there's my writing process that i've described the horrible writing process but my, my reporting process uh for this book and i think other ones too is this weird thing where like i'll be following like 20 stories at once. And, and I just kept, this was sort of the sort of year and a half that I was doing this reporting. I just kept traveling around the country and like, I'd I'd sort of check up on this person and this institution and then go to the next one and just try to put myself in places where interesting things were happening, where, you know, Shannon Torres was about to get her, uh, decisions from the colleges she'd applied to. And Kiki was showing up at Princeton and Ori was trying to figure out, you know, how to get a welding degree. And so like by going and being with them at those moments or, you know, the Angel Perez at Trinity was trying to admit a class and figure out who what he could afford to do. And so it's a weird process, right? Like just sort of going in, in circles and trying to follow all these different stories at the same time. But I feel like it's also there's something about that. It's a different sort of that sort of weird saturation um that i described in the writing like as when i'm doing that and going back to back between these different people i start to see the connections you know between like the day before i'd seen raj jetty right uh the day before this uh, economist at stanford the day before i'd seen uh shannon on, on the bench in harlem and the fact that i had he, my experience of being with him in my head as i was there was like important in terms of how i saw it um and so to me like that was the big question of the book and Mm it's a big question about writing in general like how to piece those things together to try to convey that experience but not make it just a mess like actually then have some ideas that you're getting across to people and have stories that convey them that they're going to care about and connect with emotionally like when the experience of reading a book works for me that's why it works this one worked for me thank you hey man thanks for doing this thanks it was a great conversation I appreciate it
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lamer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Louisa Garbowitz. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks very much to uh, Paul Tuff. His new book is called The Years That Matter Most. We'll see you next week with ta Coats. Coates.